1: It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us.
0: Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio <laughs> on FreeCR 855 AM. And you are joined by myself, Jacob Antwaffa, and...
2: And Chloe, good morning.
0: So we're gonna, we're your presenters for the program this week. And I guess before we get on to, um, some, to telling you about some of the news and, um, good, um, interviews that we have lined up for our program, I'd like to acknowledge today that FreeCR is being broadcast to you from Wandry, um, from the Wondry oh, wait, from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We'd like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. And that sovereignty was never ceded. Okay, so maybe, um, to kind of start off, it's actually possibly in the past 24 hours, actually a number of kind of major political developments have kind of happened. In fact, probably one of the things that have, that has happened while we've, um, been all asleep is uh Liz Truss um who is the prime minister of uh the United Kingdom uh the, also the conservative prime minister who replaced um Boris Johnson in a whole, in a leadership <laughs> kind of spill uh has a, has only resigned from parliament after only being 43 after only being prime minister for only 43 days so essentially um the United Kingdom doesn't have a prime minister now, um, and in fact they're going to be actually going to going straight into another leadership election, not a general election, um, but a leadership election. So essentially, the Tories are basically going to have to pick another leader uh, to essentially govern the country. And I guess probably we don't really have. Full time to give this kind of topic, um, the kind of depth it kind of deserves. But very much the United Kingdom is very much in a kind of state of crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a growing cost of living crisis. We're having, we're having a kind of, we're having, um, but there's also the whole nature of the economy is actually doing really sort of badly. Now, obviously, and I half think half
2: a million, I mean, millions of people are starving. Yeah, I mean, exactly. They're, they're, and they're in the throes of winter as well. They can't afford housing.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you have that. <laughs> That's um, that's one area of by which um, what's happening in the United Kingdom. But mm-hmm. there's also the other aspect of the fact that actually, pop the capitalist class themselves are not necessarily sort of happy with uh, Liz Strauss. and of course mm-hmm. that's why the Tories are struggling to govern. Now, in saying that, I mean it's not like. It's not like the capitalists being upset with uh, um Liz Trost and the government. It represents, you know, some kind of progressive sort of <laughs> thing in itself. It's very much, I think, reflects the kind of nature of the capitalist system. It, this is, in a sense, a situation where the ruling government is, in a sense struggling to govern under the weight of its own sort of contradictions. Mm. And, you know, all the contradictions that have kind of led up to this, you know, from...
2: Taxes for the rich.
0: From the tax mm. cuts on the on the rich, from the, the oh, mismanagement... Tax, ta, the tax cuts, yeah. Um, and, mm. you know, all these things are kind of accumulating. Of course, there's also the impacts of, you know, the United Kingdom leaving the European <laughs> Union. So, like, mm. everything's all kind of coming to roost, really, for the ruling part um, for the Tories, and I think what's what's quite, I think, exciting um, is there is, you know, probably one thing to kind of point out is Liz Strose has been undone and received massive backlash on the streets for these um, proposed kind of tax cuts, which I don't have the, like the information on hand for the technical, yeah, like all the technical detail, but essentially they were putting forward tax cuts that were going to disproportionately benefit the rich while... People are struggling to um, to eat and uh, afford electricity. Um, there was such a massive response on the streets to this. And what's kind of like bringing it back to Australia, you have a Labor government that is essentially getting away with implementing similar tax cuts <laughs> for um, for the rich. Um, and there's no, and there hasn't been the same level of street response. Now, of course, that, that it's understandable in a sense that you know as bad as the kind of crisis is um for in within capitalism it's probably hasn't hit australia as hard as it has the um the united kingdom so of course that's understandable but i think it does it is kind of telling that you know you have a labor government that's essentially implementing something very similar to what the tories are doing in the united kingdom and in the uh, but in the united kingdom context um that's enough um, for them to be done over um, with it on on the streets and and both politically as well. Now, the other kind of major sort of news story that I think is going to be an important kind of discussion. And it's possibly going to dominate the headlines for like the next week. But this in re- um, relates to Lydia Forp, um, um, the great uh, Aboriginal Green Senator, who has and has also been a guest on our on on Green Left Radio. Um, she has been she has been um she has been forced to resign as Green's deputy leader in Senate after after a revelation that she had um that she had not disclosed a relationship with an ex bikey boss and of course while sitting on a parliamentary law enforcement committee. Now to kind of to get into without going into all the kind of detail in the story, which I don't think we're gonna have time, I actually think my kind of analysis of this situation is i think this is a bit of a a bit of a beat up
2: mm, in a sense it's a minor thing um, <laughs> when you can bear it
0: there's you know. a there's a real hypocr- mm. there's a real clear hypocrisy of the of the establishment because at the end of the day Lydia's personal life is actually her business like who she has relationships with etc yet we have all these ALP and Liberal National Party politicians who have you know who have being revealed to have all sorts of dubious associations with, um, corporate board, boards, um, lobbying outfits. You know, we have a, we have a situation where, you know, our, our, our the opposition leader, um, Matthew Guy has been implicated in having, um, dinner, like, yeah, uh, lobster links, dinners yeah. with organized crime bosses. And, mm. you know, this is apparent. I mean, apparently according to. And you're going to hear a lot of this um, from the established media. Mm. We're going to be hearing a lot about how everything about how oh Lydia, this is a this is a disgrace to democracy. This is a disgrace to to um to the you know to the to good governance. But you know, it's very much it's a total beat up and 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 it's specifically political in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah, I agree. Like, like this 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 whole um thing about Lydia Thorpe dating a um. What is it, a bikey? I don't, I'm not even sure he was a, he was that while she was dating him, but I actually haven't read too many of the details, but it, it does seem like a minor thing when you compare it to what the ALP and the LNP have been doing on a day to day basis. And they get away with things, like liberal, the liberal party's Christian Porter, the former attorney general, got promoted to leader of the house after there were allegations of sexual assault against him. You know, it's just, I mean, and, and like you said, there's quite a few people who had links to underworld figures and organized crime, and that didn't stop them from becoming politicians and leaders. And these so-called tough-on-crime <laughs> politicians like Matthew Guy, yeah, they've been known to sit down with the mafia and seek donations. And I just think that the establishment has really been waiting for something like this to happen. I mean, there's been so much... Racism and hate and sexism directed towards Lydia Thorpe throughout her political career. It's pretty shocking. And that this brief relationship with this former bikey has meant the end of her time as Greens deputy leader in, in the Senate. It's pretty, um, yeah, like we, um, I mean yeah, it's 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 pretty shocking actually.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I think it's gonna I think it is gonna be very important, you know, for mm. left wing people and, you know, the left movement to actually come in solidarity yeah. and defence of Lydia Forbes yeah. because mm. there is, you know, this is this is only this only just happened yesterday, like yeah. all these revelations only just happened yesterday we're going to um, um, see all this sort of terrible things um, and slander coming out against Lydia in the next week or so, especially from the Murdoch media who have been looking for an opportunity to, you know, know, raise the hammer. In fact, that's what they've been consistently doing towards Lydia um, because she's, you know, dares to speak out, um, out about Aboriginal rights and and speaks out, you know, about the (laughs) truth of what Australia is founded on, which is that of dispossession and colonisation. Now, um, I th- we're getting, um, I'll go, we're going to have to, cu- unfortunately, we're going to have to cut this kind of discussion short, but yeah, this is obviously going to be, I think, a recurring kind of discussion for the next um, kind of week, so we'll hopefully go, we'll be, you know, discussing it in hopefully more detail, and as, especially as more things come out, um, and also, you know, I think, as I said, it's going to be very important for left-wing people to come in the defence of Lydia, and I think just the last thing, we'll just play a quick announcement, and we're going to be going into our first interview with um, Dave Ball, who is the Assistant Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia. So I'll go... We'll be, we'll be playing a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio on freeCR 855 AM.
3: 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system.
1: 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach.
2: And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast.
3: 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration.
1: Well, all the boys mentioned about
4: being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family. It's how you care about your cousins. and It's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for
3: me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. Our Programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream.
1: Today, we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos.
4: And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you
0: can have. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And we are very happy to be having Dave Ball on our program who is the Assistant Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia. And one of the special stories, um, special reasons that we have um, David on our program today is that it's actually the 150th anniversary of the Maritime Union of Australia, which is actually Mm. quite an exciting um, milestone, especially in terms of... You know what the union has achieved over the years, and of course, Green Left Radio and Free CR as a whole. You know we've always, you know, we're always supporters of um, of the MUA, and in fact, I think even the MUA, um, uh, MUA is also a affiliate of um, Free CR and have their own fr- um, program. So, good morning, um, Dave.
2: Morning, Dave.
5: Thank you, Jacob. Hi, Jacob and Chloe. How
2: are you both? Yeah, we're doing well. Thanks for being on the show, and congratulations yeah, on. 150th anniversary of the MUA.
5: No, thank you. It's a a really exciting time for us. Um, Obviously, it comes at uh, the back of a lot of different unions amalgamating together over many, many years, starting with the Australian Seamen's Union here in Melbourne, which uh, they had their first meeting just down in Port Melbourne, which we celebrated on the 21st of September. That was the actual date where that Siemens Union was formed, and at the same time, there was meetings taking place all over Australia, and there's always a bit of a tussle between us and uh, New South Wales as to actually what union was formed first, or where the first meetings take place, but uh, Victoria stands by the 21st of September, um, 150 years ago, so yeah, really exciting times.
0: Yeah, so I think the first question, um, Dave, in, in terms of starting, I guess, our interview is, I mean, what can you tell us about, you know, the MUA, give us a bit of reflection about the MUA, and I guess some of the things that the union has achieved and stood up for throughout, you know, its long and, and quite incredible history.
5: Yeah, well, it is, it is exciting history, and um, I think one of the things for me that makes it so special is our internationalism, which comes out of our... Our seamen's union background, where obviously seafarers travelled all over the world and met different cultures and different workers who struggled all over the country, so we've always had a very big international flavour. But that's to take nothing away from the waterside workers' federation or the, or the Walfies as the top workers, who are they are becoming more and more international all the time. But um, they've had some fantastic wins and achievements over the year, obviously. Um, the 1998 dispute with Patrick's was a Waterside Workers' dispute and probably the most significant industrial dispute in modern times in Australia. Um, it was a, it was an event that uh, challenged the union movement right to the core, and uh, it was a, it was because of the fantastic solidarity with the Melbourne community. Well, it, it happened all over the country. It happened in Fremantle. It happened in Sydney. But obviously for us the um, the concentration was on Melbourne, and the community of Melbourne really got behind the waterside workers. Um, they understood that the Howard government were just attacking them, um, and it was it was just a total ideological attack on on their working conditions. And all the unions got right behind the uh, the waterside workers or the the MUA. And um, fortunately, we were able to maintain our um, presence on the waterfront, which was really significant for uh, all unions because had um, Howard had the ability to chase us off the waterfront, then it would be, uh, you know, who knows what would have happened to the union movement. But fortunately, we were able to push them back. And so that was a magnificent event. And there's been lots of international events as well. Um, you know, the, the Delfram dispute out of Port Canberra. Um, you know, Ind- we helped a lot with Indonesia. Um, all, all the wars, we've played really big roles. Um, not many people may realise that um, one in 14 merchant seamen died during World War II. Um, a lot of vessels were, were sunk during World War Two, which was supply, um, you know, providing supplies to our troops overseas. So that was really significant. And probably one of the things I'd really like to talk a little bit about is the... Um, the Wave Hill Rock Walk Off in Northern Territory. We've just had the Gurungi Festival. We have uh, a wonderful uh, man working for the MUA called Thomas Mayer. He's, um, he's a, he's a First Nations man and he is, um, in a massive struggle for his people right now, fighting for the, um, Uluru Statement to be, um, ticked off and give First Nations people a voice inside the Constitution and, that would be a massive achievement for First Nations people, and uh, the MUA hopefully will, uh, I think, will be recorded as being a significant player in that in, in history as well because um, we've put a lot of support behind Thomas and we put a lot of support behind the Illinois Statement, and we're really looking forward to that getting out.
2: Yeah, thanks, um, Dave. I mean, it, it's a really interesting history that the MUA have, and, you know, we can take lessons from today as well, um, you know, workers, especially, and how they can help build the anti-war movement. I mean, the f- workers, you know, have risked their lives and paved the way for many international sol- solidarity movements. So we appreciate you sharing some of those things with us, um, those memories with us. Um, but just on to another question we wanted to ask. So the MUA covers workers in the fossil fuel industry, and you know, has a good position on climate change. We wanted to know if you can discuss the transition away from fossil fuels and what the role the union has had to play in that.
5: Yeah, so this is a really exciting area for us. Um, we do have a lot of members who still make a living out of the fossil fuel industry. Uh, we respect their right to make a living out of that industry, but we also acknowledge that that is a sunset industry, Um you know, it needs to, be, it needs to be wound up and we need to move towards renewable energy. Fortunately for our workers, their skills can transition straight into the renewable energy, um, uh, industry. In this particular case, for us, the, the focus is on offshore wind and, um, sea, seafarer skills and warfare skills just translate or transition straight over into that industry and the MUA have, uh, put several submissions into the federal government. We, lock, we constantly lobby the state government here in Victoria with the assistance of Victorian Trades Hall, Colin Long, who is the Just Transition Coordinator out of Victorian Trades Hall, and the ETU and other unions who are all getting on board and um, trying to get that industry off the ground. The, the, the exciting project called the Star of the South uh, it's believed will be the first offshore wind project to start in Australia, and it is super exciting. It's a, it's an entire industry that we don't have right now, so it's it's the birth of an entire new industry. We're hoping that uh, we can get manufacturing of those wind, ty- wind turbines here in Australia. That's the ultimate aim. It, it's a big goal, but uh, we, we believe that we have the resources and skills right across all the different uh, work. Um, you know. Unions, the, obviously the AMWU would play a big role in manufacturing, and uh, Gippsland is just screaming out for you know an industry like that to take up where once that uh, all those power stations down there close down. So, yeah, we are really excited about that, and we're really on the front foot with um, trying to get that industry off the ground.
0: Yeah. So, what can you tell? Um, going back to um, to the kind of history, I guess some of the history, I guess of the union. Um, again, can you tell us, I guess, about The MUA has always, I guess, been the kind of subject to of a lot of kind of slanderous attacks by the right-wing kind of establishment. I mean, the bosses, and especially that of the bosses, have always, you know, hated how the MUA has always organised and consistently fought for workers' rights and I guess, what can you tell us I guess about, you know, how the MUA has resisted some, um, resisted some of those attacks, and, you know built the confidence in, in, in workers within the union to fight for their rights and for the rights for others
5: So we're very lucky while well, we work hard at it that our union density in our workplaces is in the very high 90%. So most of the... Well, so so everybody in our workplace has joined the MUA, and obviously that comes... You get strength out of unity and everybody being in the union. When you shift work or you work on a ship, you develop a camaraderie with your fellow workers that's probably a little bit deeper than the normal day shift, Monday to Friday job, because you get to see those fellows workers through every sort of facet of the day you are uh, you you know you share with them the hardships with their families and their friends and you develop as i said a camaraderie that's probably a little bit stronger than, than you know in a lot of workplaces so i think that builds our strength i think also that you know our great history you know the 1998 dispute uh, obviously that's what, 40, 30, 35 years ago now. Um, you know, that's spoken about all the time between the workers and how that, you know, we we're up against the odds, but with the assistance of all the other unions, we managed to push back. We have a, you know, we have a, you know, obviously that, the logo that emerged out of 1998, I mean, some people might think MUA here to stay, that logo has been around for forever, but it actually emerged out of that dispute, and it's such a great logo, and... We genuinely believe that we'll be here to stay and, uh, you we know, we'll continue to fight no matter what. And we, we often sort of, often sort of think to ourselves, well, what are the bosses thinking? You know, haven't they been following our history? Do they really think that we're going to give up on this? And, you know, we just don't and we continue to fight. And that was seen recently with the Cube dispute in Frio where our workers were put out on the grass for 13 weeks and all the country got behind them. We assisted them financially, emotionally and every bit of support we could and we got through that dispute and there's going to be another dispute with Cube coming up in the future. So we just continue to fight and fight and fight. And at the moment, I'm sure you guys have already probably spoken about it I'm on your shows, the Canuff dispute down in Turner Street in Port Melbourne. Next Tuesday, the MUA are going to get down there in numbers at 11 o'clock and we're going to show, throw our support behind those workers who have been out on the grass for five weeks and encourage them to continue the fight and, uh, will we be beside them all the way?
2: Yeah, um, yeah, thanks, Dave. We've, we've been going down to the picket line, um, the Canaf picket line ourselves and it is really inspiring, um, that all 60 workers, all unionised, are, you know, continue to, to stand strong. Uh, but you, you mentioned, you've already given us a bit of, the MUA's proud history of showing international solidarity, but it is like very um, inspiring to hear about things like the Delfram dispute, and you know the fact that um, you know the MUA was you know they've had some really good positions, but they you know they refused to support um, you know the likes of Robert Menzies with his in his fight with the Australian union workers over the shipping of iron to Japan during the World War Two, and you know they refused to support Japanese fascists invading another country. I mean, it really does show, um, you know, demonstrated the importance of solidarity between workers and unionists. And yeah, we just wanted to know, like, a few more examples, or could you give us, like, a, a few more historic, um, you know, moments um, in in the MUA's history of, of that kind of international solidarity?
5: Well, one of the ones that sticks out to me, I have a bit of a personal uh, part to it, um, was, was Nelson Mandela and apartheid and the MUA were very outspoken at a time when you know countries were turning a blind eye to apartheid and Nelson Mandela was a guest of the MUA out in Australia and my father-in-law um, was actually bodyguard so that that was a bit of a personal experience for me and he was very proud of that moment and, and uh, we were very proud of our role that we played in uh, opposing apartheid and Making sure that everybody else knew that it was the wrong thing to do. Um, we also had, we also had a fair bit to do, um, in Indonesia that, uh, not many people know about. So we've totally supported the, the independence of the Indonesian people and we still do now. I mean, there was a bit of a, a more recent history with the, an oil pipeline in the Timor Sea, um, you know, where there was quite a few conspiracies regarding where the oil pipeline started, whether it was at East Timorese uh, land or in Australian land. I think the Australian government pulled a fair bit of a shifty there, but the MUA supported the Indonesian seafarers right through that process and made sure they continued to get work. So uh, there's just a couple more experiences... Um, I'm not really sure
0: of any others right now. Yeah, Well, I think that's actually a very good kind of reflection of of Mm. the different. because obviously I think, you know, the union has been around for 150 years. I'm sure we could probably spend all day, um, you know, discussing all the different kind of milestones, all the different campaigns and struggles Mm. that the MUA has shown solidarity with over the years. And I guess that kind of goes in, I guess, um, you know, I mean... Maybe looking a bit to kind of like, I want to hear, I guess, some of your kind of reflections on the union in the future. Like, I guess, what are your some of your hopes for the union in the future? Like, you know, things that, you know, you hope to achieve um, and so on.
5: Well, I guess on a, on a social level, I, I mentioned earlier the Uluru Statement. That's a, a massive campaign for us. Um, automation on the waterfront is a massive concern for us. So we're fighting against automation at the moment and, um, Australian shipping is, is one of our biggest campaigns. We really want to get Australian seafarers back on ships that are, you know, moving between ports on Australian coastlines and also to protect our merchant seamen's jobs in Bass Straits. Now the Port of Melbourne it's been privatised unbelievably by a state Labor government, the Dan Andrews government. They leased out the Port of Melbourne for 50 years. And, you know, that privatised part of the port is is bending over to big business, big shipping, and they're forcing the Australian Bass Strait trade up under the river, which will increase the costs of that trade. We don't support that at all. We We don't support big shipping dictating to the Port of Melbourne and telling them how they should run their business, it needs to go back into state hands, and we'd like to see that happen. We'd like to see this, the Australian uh, federal government and state government invest a lot more money in Australian shipping. They're telling us they're doing that, and we're pretty excited about uh, Yeah, getting Australian crews back on Australian ships.
0: Yeah, yeah. so in terms of... Um we're probably running a bit out of our time now, and we want to kind of conclude the guest interview now. But I guess the final kind of question, I guess, is how are you and the MUA celebrating the 150 years of um, struggle, solidarity, and unity? And I guess, you know, is there kind of like any events that, you know, supporters of the union can come to help, you know, recognise this important milestone?
5: There has been a couple of events. Like I mentioned on the 21st of September, there was an event. Uh, where we did a bit of a walk around Port Melbourne to check out the different historical places the union has been involved with. We, we do have an event coming up, uh, on the 29th of October, but, um, unfortunately it's MUA members, uh, it's an event for the MUA members where we have the painters and dockers playing and various bands. We've, I've just come back from Sydney where we had a 150th dinner and Anthony Albanese spoke at it. So that was uh, exciting and good to see that as the Prime Minister, he's still supporting the union. Um so there is events happening all over the country, but uh yeah, that's probably about it.
0: All right. Well thank you very much, um, Dave. And yeah, I think at the end of the day, I mean Green Left and is gonna to continue to kind of support the, the great work that the MUA continues doing and will always, you know, um continue to stand in solidarity with um with your struggles against, you know, any injustice. Thank you, Jacob and Chloe. Thanks for the time for this
2: morning. Incredible milestone, Dave. Thanks for coming on the show. Cheers.
0: Bye. bye. All right. So we we're just um, talking to um, having uh, into. I'm um, talking to Dave Ball, who is the Assistant Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia in Victoria, and we, um, yeah, we just basically had a good you know good discussion about the 150 years of MUA and one um one thing that was kind of highlighted in in that interview was um the late, was the historic Patrick's dispute that we actually re- we actually had an interview and discussion about it was one of the biggest kind of uh disputes and, and it actually involved you know more than 2 when when more than 2000 uh, involved more than 2000 construction workers marching up the job um you know which in defence of the MUA, um, maintaining their picket, and of course it was enough to kind of stop the cops from smashing them. And that kind of ex- the kind of the exciting kind of imagery of that is reflected in this song um, called "Roll On" by the Living End, which we're going to go, which we'll play right now um, for um, for the next um, part of the program. Enjoy. You are listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR eight five five AM. Sanford!
5: We'll meet you at New replacement Place no
0: Um, um, you're, sorry, you're just listening to "Roll On" by The Living End, which is actually a very great song, and um, that is a great sort of commemoration of the the Patrick's dispute. Now, I'll, I thought we'd go into a bit. We have another interview coming up in ten minutes, but I thought we'd um, go do a bit of a news, um, do a bit of a news report from the pages, I guess, from the pages of Green Left. And this is actually in relation to an article that actually I wrote, um, which is basically something, it's, it's basically something that kind of, um, happened in the last Friday when these, when the massive kind of, fl- um, when the floods, um, when we, when Victoria was impacted by some re- quite severe kind of floods where actually a lot of homes were actually, um, badly kind of affected. Um, and in fact, it, it affected a lot of, Parts in rural Victoria, especially Shepparton, but probably one of the one of the key areas in in the city of Melbourne was um was the um was in within Maribyrn, and this is and and some and some of our listeners probably saw some of this imagery, but this was more this is uh, but basically one of the kind of prominent Im- Im- images that we saw, and it, this is kind of like a very good kind of demonstration of you know the coal class nature. Of of the the entire climate crisis, but it's very much the whole. You saw the kind of image of the Flemington Racecourse where it there was this map. There's this massive kind of flood wall that was kind of built around it, and of course that wall was built to protect uh, the Flemington Racecourse from um, from flooding from the impacts of flooding. But then essentially, what you kind of saw in those images was that of you know the Flemington Racecourse completely protected from mm-hmm. the impacts of flood, but all the rest of the water just going being driven down to the neighbouring houses. And I think that kind of imagery is a kind of perfect kind of description of you know the climate crisis, um, because these extreme weather events like floods are going to become are becoming more frequent because directly because of um, of climate change. And now going to guess into the sort of article where I kind of reported on this. I think one of the things to kind of note is, back in the day, more than three councils and many residents opposed Racing Victoria's 2004 proposal to build the flood war around Flemington Racecourse because there were concerns that it would exacerbate um, the flood risk of the area. But, of course, these, as I sort of implied earlier, these concerns were very much confirmed, confirmed when severe flooding hit um, Victoria on October 14th. Because very much the flood war basically forced water into housing developments, into and industrial estates along the valley floor, and the state emergency services uh, on Saturday actually confirmed the next day that more than 245 homes in Mariborne were inundated by flood water, Yet the aerial footage shows Flemington racecourses were completely un, um, were completely unaffected, and f- people, you know, a lot of the flood the flood uh, the pe- the residents who were affected by the floods are angry, you know. They, you know, Thane have basically said in the media that this floodgate war has made the flood impacts worse. Some told the age that it, kind of, that it directed flood water away from the natural floodplain into their homes. And I think, you know, this anger I think was even further triggered. Um, when Dale, um, Montini, um, who was a racing club chief executive and chairman of Harness, uh, Ricky he couldn't help himself apparently. Mm. <laughs> um, he took, basically made this big tweet saying, uh, praising the flood war for, um, for, um, preserving the Flemington racecourse as people's homes were like destroyed and impacted by this actually really severe flood. This guy thought the most important thing was to tweet about how his precious private property has been preserved,
2: and that he's entitled. He was entitled along to build the wall.
0: Well, um, that was that. That's actually a different quote. Actually, oh. that was um, that was more what the CEO of um oh, of right. horse racing Victoria said. And and in fact, yeah, his response to the criticism that um, race Victoria is receiving over this is, you know. He, they're basically saying that they were entitled to build the wall to protect the property, even while acknowledging it had unintended consequences. And I think, yeah, there's also, there's also a discussion has kind of been started as well about whether, you know, is it, should the, um, horse racing Victoria pay compensation to flood affected residents? And of course, there's a, a law, a local law, law firm that is actually looking into a potential class action against the Victoria Racing's wall. And possibly one element as well of this story is under pressure, Melbourne Water has, you know, they have confirmed on October 16th that it will review um, whether the Flemington Racecourse Flood contributed to the flooding. But there is actually concerns about, you know, whether this review is going to be objective. I mean, given the fact that the Melbourne Waters, you know, played a key role in actually approving the flood war to begin with. Um, and I guess, yeah, there was also, um, there also has been some reporting recently that, um, you know, a hydrology and flood warning expert, Jeff Crapper, um, responsible for Melbourne's flood warning service at Melbourne Water from 1989 to 2003, you know, had actually sort of lobbied the, um, what was the Steve Brack Labour government at the time to build a dam around the Marybone River. And of course, you know, they, there's, although there is quite a bit of Debate and about this, like in terms within the scientific community, of course, you know, there is a, but there is a sort of implication that there is a suggestion that potentially hundreds of homes, you know, inundated in the recent floods could have been saved. But I also think it very much, you know, I think this is an open discussion that needed needs to be had. But it also just reflects that when you look at the history of this, the fact that, you know, the fact that there was more than three councils that had actually mm. opposed this, but You know, you had, but essentially the state government just went and overturned the decision and just basically said this has to go ahead. Um, You know, just is very much an example of, you know, how state governments, you know, actually prioritise, you know, the, the, the interest of, you know, prop, uh, you know, profit above, uh, above that of people.
2: Yeah, it's an outrage. I mean, they're just, yeah, I mean, hundreds of people's homes got destroyed and, Really, I mean, yeah, you're right they're just they're more concerned about protecting and lining the pockets of the the racing the horse racing industry an industry that you know um treats you know that that is um you know where animals are treated really cruelly, and you know it's in support of the gambling industry, and you know we know that around Melbourne cup time, especially domestic violence goes up, and I mean we are against um you know, we say nup to the cup and we are against horse racing, but it's just, yeah, it is It is disgusting how they're, they're putting the needs of um, the horse racing industry above ordinary people. Um, and, yeah, Victorian Greens MP Ellen Sundell made a good point when she criticised Labour for approving this flood wall years ago. She said the race course should have been um, the place to hold the flood water rather than divert it to other areas where people actually trying to live um it's yeah it's it's crazy i don't know if people have seen the pictures of it but it's um i the thing is that this was expected everyone knew this was going to happen and yeah they just they weren't listened to
0: and i think yeah i think it just it just kind of reflects Uh, kind of another yeah just it's just just this is just a strong example you know going back to case of my original point about you know it very Mm. much reflects the kind of class nature of the client crisis Mm. it's going to disproportionately impact on working class people yet you know the capitalist class and is going to be pulling all stops to make sure that their private property is preserved in the midst of this client crisis and their profits are are also, um, um, also, and also the preservation of their own profits. And I just think this is a classic sort of kind of story, um, that presents that kind of example. And I think, you know, I, I wish all the people, um, I wish the, the law, law firm that's, um, doing the, um, the class action all the best with their case. And I also think that, um, what has been quite expiring as well has been, you know, the fact that, you know, people have actually mobilized and organized. There's actually a Facebook, um, group, um, Facebook group called Flood Warriors that, you know, anyone can join. So if anyone listeners have been affected by the floods or want to be involved in their local community to help with the flood cleanup, you know, that page has been actually coordinating a lot of, you know, people coming together support. and supporting. I think that is actually a very kind of heartening thing to do, um, to see like in this sort of time of crisis. All right, so I'm just going to go play, I'll go play a quick um, few announcements. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR, 855 AM. In the
2: lead up to the state election, join the Homes Not Prisons campaign for street theatre, speeches from people with a lived experience of criminalisation and a rally demanding investment in Aboriginal community-controlled public housing for criminalised women and their families. 4pm on Friday the 21st of October at Parliament Steps in Nam, Melbourne. Keep the pressure on. Fun communities, not prisons and police. Friday 21st of October, 4pm Parliament Steps. Homes, not prisons, is a 3CR supporter.
3: Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favorite podcast app.
0: Okay. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And we're happy, very happy to be joined by Kerry Bryan, um, who is a public act, um, housing activist, who is part of a new kind of activist group called Public Housing Frontline, which is actually organising, and one of the reasons we have her on the program today is to talk actually about an upcoming protest um, that is being, being organised around um, by public housing tenants. So good morning, Kerry. Um, good morning, Carrie. Can you hear me? Yep, all good. I, it was my fault it was our fault. Yes, so it's all good. <laughs> um so I guess um to kind of start I guess off off a bit of the kind yes. of discussion, Carrie, I guess Maybe giving a bit of context, I guess, you know, what, yeah. can, you, can you give us a bit of a summary, I guess, you know, and we're going to go into more detail about some of the specific aspects around public housing, but I guess I want to sort of hear a bit of a summary about, you know, the current kind of situation for sure. public housing as it is, as it's happening right well,
1: now. Well, I mean, the bigger picture or the overall agenda of the Andrews government is that it seems they want to dismantle the public housing system and hand it o- hand over what's left of it to the corporatised housing associations. And so far, as I think a lot of your listeners would be aware, the main driver of that has been to demolish public housing estates, um, you know, about... Oh, it's up to about 15 across uh, Melbourne now, and uh, displace tenants to far-flung areas and partner with developers to create private real estate opportunities with a bit of community or social housing tacked on, uh, no genuine public housing. And can I just say, before we get into the nub of the issue uh, that we want to talk about today, um, I would encourage everyone to check out MAB's development called Preston Crossing uh, in Oakover Road. Preston, that was a public housing estates, so um, that's all I'll say about that. People can have a look for themselves and see what a massive private development it's going to be. So, um, but just to get to the nub of the issue, the other aspect of this overall agenda seems to be that they're um, basically crippling the day-to-day operations of the public housing system. Um, they're not doing serious building maintenance in a timely manner, and they're winding down the operations of the local housing offices. In in the case of my local office, to a skeleton staff, and. Um, yeah. So, did you want me to go into those issues a bit more specifically?
0: Yeah. Well, I one of the, I guess, in terms of like this rally, and I guess probably one mm. of the, the important things that's getting uh, that it, it's flowing on from, and I guess you know we're all, I guess, part around of, of, of this campaign against the public housing renewal project um, mm. that was implemented by the state labor government in 2017, and I guess you've been actually following, um, you know a bit of its kind of legacy. Like, what is it... What is this kind of public housing renewal project actually... What has it actually amounted to um, in right. practice? Because, you know, the sad thing, you know, it, with our campaign is we... While there might have been some things we might have partially won if we didn't campaign otherwise... The overall project, we weren't able to kind of stop the project. Um, so, yeah, what is a, actually the kind of legacy, I guess, of this of the public housing renewal program? And yeah, from my understanding, you have been, you know, following um, the development and actually keeping a record of what's been going on.
1: Yeah, well, we're just starting to do that um, properly with a Facebook page called Spotlight on the Public Housing Renewal Program. Uh, because, as you said, um, it was announced in 2017 and it affected um, nine estates plus two more which were funded differently, which was um, uh, Preston and the Flemington Walkups. So it's basically 11 estates across Melbourne. And um, so we've started to take photos of what's happening there now because basically it's taken the best part of five years for them to start construction on on some of those estates such as the one i mentioned at preston in Oakover road um grand place they've started work on that's grand place brunswick and the flemington walk-ups of course um oh and um at Abbotsford Street, North Melbourne, the site is actually engulfed by the massive school there. So um, we're going to be putting up photos of that as well. I don't think there's going to be much room for housing. The school is enormous. Um, Yes, so so what we found earlier this year was... um, We've, we've been talking to tenants because the government started another round of redevelopments under the big housing bill. Specifically, it's called the ground lease model. They've already um, done all the contracts for the first round. And now um, they, they started eyeing off other estates, including one in Port Melbourne um, called the Barrack Beacon Estate. And what we found when we talked to the tenants was... It, We're trying to explain to them how, you know, the government's got all these other estates where they moved everyone out and demolished the estates, but they haven't even started doing anything. And that's like more than four four years after they um, made the announcements. So we're trying to explain to them about, um, I don't know, how unrealistic all of these projects are and how um, grandiose they are. But the reality is quite different, and I think um, we decided the best way to do that was by creating a Facebook page so we can show them what's happening with each estate, and it's a good way to keep track of what the government's doing. So, as I said, we've um, so far we've done a snapshot of about five estates. There'll be some more coming up in the next few days, and um, and once we've finished um, recording. The public housing renewal program estates. Then we'll move on to these other newer ones, as I said, and um, the ground lease model ones, which summer at Paran and now Port Melbourne and Hampton, and so forth.
0: And yeah, what can you? I guess. Um... Probably one issue before I get you to kind of – where we um, get you to kind of talk about the upcoming rally that, I guess, has been organised next Friday. I want to – I just want to guess one important sort of issue, I think, that this – that is a bit of a recurring issue for public housing tenants is, I guess, what is the issue of maintenance of public housing? Because, I guess, one of the justifications for, you know, why – you know, the state government is going through the through the um, implementing the public housing renewal project. Probably one of the other justifications for why they're trying to make this transition from public housing to community owned housing is this overall issue of maintenance. And I guess, what can can you I guess expand a bit about that in in terms of the situation as it's affecting um, affecting tenants and why tenants you know are right to be demanding more from our state government on this issue.
1: Yes, well, um, we have a public tenants group on Facebook as well, and that's largely just where public tenants can report their issues and get advice from other tenants. And, um, look, we've just found that repeatedly people are reporting horrific stuff across the state, unsafe housing, particularly mould. Mould is a big issue that doesn't seem to be being addressed at all. Um, I'll give you a local example. My neighbour's been helping a family in the street. When they moved in, they had mould. That was over a year ago. It hasn't been addressed. But also they've got... They had a massive case of termites whereby the skirting boards and the architraves have all been eaten away. Can you believe it? And yet, despite their complaints, nothing was happening. So my neighbour got on to the housing complaints office and eventually they came out and sprayed they sprayed the whole street but they haven't um done repairs to as i said the skirting boards and so on which have been eaten away by all the termites so that's just one example where they're not taking serious stuff they don't address serious issues in a timely manner i mean look i'm not going to say that all maintenance is appalling i i have um it's very much um, you know you can have very responsive contractors like I find the electricians always come really quickly but speaking for myself um, I reported I needed a new blind and um, I rang nearly every week for three months Jacob and in the end I just gave up um, and one of the problems there was that, um, you know, they keep telling, oh, we're on to it, we're on to it. The contractor's going to get fined if they don't come out. And um, unfortunately, one of the things that we've had to put in our demands is how sometimes in these sort of cases, what's happening is the contractors are um, wrongly reporting that they've come out and we haven't been home. So that's, that's one issue. But um, the main issue is that um, there's unsafe, unhealthy conditions and um, they're not being addressed in a timely manner. And um, if you remember, Jacob, the last time we talked, it was about the Ombudsman's report, and these are the sort of things that she's focused on as well. And that report was issued three months ago, yet neither the previous minister, Richard Wynne, nor the current minister, Danny Pearson, have bothered to respond to it. It's just like they want to ignore all these problems, as if they're going to go away. So we want to make, um, make the minister aware that the, prob- the problems aren't going away, but also we're not going away. This is not a stunt. We will continue... Um, with our advocacy until the system is changed for the better.
0: Hmm. And now I think it's time to kind of get into um, the details about the rally. And I guess, can you tell us about this rally that I guess is coming up next Friday? And I guess, what are you know some of the demands that um, tenants are going to be putting forward as part of this rally?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's um, outside the Minister's office at 12.30 next Friday, the 28th of October. That address is... 28, excuse me, 28 Shooter Street. I actually don't know how you pronounce that, whether it's Shooter or Shutter, but it's spelled S-H-U-T-E-R, Shutter Street, Mooney Ponds. And um, it's, uh, Mooney Ponds is very central. You can get to it by, by uh, sorry, by train or tram. And Shooter Street runs off Puckle Street, which is the main drag. So it shouldn't be too hard for people to find. Um, yeah, so that's at 12:30 next Friday and look we'd like to um, we want everyone to come, everyone who has a concern about the housing crisis and we'll try to give people an opportunity to speak um, you know if you're concerned about homelessness or you've got high private rent etc um, but we just needed to focus on the public housing issues the issues that specifically affect public and social housing tenants because um, until now there hasn't really been focused on. And we know that um, social or community housing tenants also have issues. We have a friend at the moment who's again dealing with a very serious mould issue that she had to take to VCAT and it's still not really been addressed. Yeah. So, is there anything else you'd like me to tell you about the rally?
0: Um, I think that um, that should be it actually, because we've, got, we've been out of time. But I, I guess okay. you can just repeat um, the details about the rally um, and yeah, encourage people to come along.
1: Yeah, it's on Friday the 28th of October, 12.30, outside the Minister of Housing's office at 28 Shooter Street, Moonee Pond. And we've got a list of demands, and they refer to all the things we've talked about today. Uh, maintenance plus, can I just say, the the uh, local housing offices, they're shutting down in the sense that they're not open for a full five days a week. You know, you, you can hardly get to... Um, speak to a housing officer and there's also a problem with the rental rebate system but perhaps if we're out of time I won't go into that but these are all in the list of demands that we hope to present to the Minister or his staff on the day.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much, um, Kerry. And I think, yeah, all the best of luck, um, with this rally. I think this will be an, I think an important action for people to kind of support. Um, I think, yeah, I think they get it, there needs to be more, you know, the spotlight needs yeah. to be shown on, you know, what the state Labour government are actually doing with, um, public housing. And yeah, just to repeat the kind of details, um, for our listeners. This rally is going to be happening at 12.30pm at Suit 128 Shutter Street in Moonee Ponds, um, at, in Victoria, so yeah, um, hope, hope to, we hope to. Yeah, and we meeting. want
1: everyone to come, not just public tenants. If you have any concerns and you want to support us, please come along. Yep,
0: all right. Thank you very much, Kerry. Um, I Thanks think this very has been much, a very Kate. good discussion.
1: All right, Peace. bye.
0: All right, so we're just speaking to Kerry Bryan, um, who is a long-time kind of public housing actress, about this upcoming rally that's going to be happening next Friday. And, um, yeah, we'll go play. Um, we'll play a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. We've
4: got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel. is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle.
3: You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR Digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
0: Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And now it is time for the Green Left Activist Calendar, um, and highlighting some of the upcoming, um, political events that are going to be coming up this week. So the first event, um, which we kind of, I think, oh, oh no, we did, um, we did note that there was a date change. Um, so the fun communities, not prisons and police pre-election rally. It's going to be happening to, it's going to be happening today at four o'clock outside the Parliament of Victoria. Um, I think this is going to be a kind of an important sort of action. This is a rally that's actually going against the whole kind of, Daniel, the Andrews government's sort of law and order agenda—you know, basically the Andrews government has basically increased, you know, massive numbers of money put into law enforcement and prisons. Yet there's no money being invested towards, you know, Aboriginal um, housing services, and certainly no money is being allocated towards directly increasing public housing either. So I think, you know, this is basically arguing that, you know, community—we um, need to fund communities, not prisons and co- um, um, on police. Then on on Friday tonight there is going to be a free CR fundraiser by our pro, um, by the program Done by Law and they're going to be having a trivia night um, and that's going to be happening at on Friday the 21st of October 6:30 p.m. just out at the Collingwood Town Hall, 140 Huddle Street in Abbotsford. Then renters and Housing Union are going to be organising a protest. Rent is too high. Rally for renters' rights and that's going to be happening at the Parliament House at 2 p.m and then on on saturday 2 p m there's also going to be a free iran rally which is going to be happening at the state library and then on on tuesday october the 25th there's going to be a film screening life is waiting at um at the uh, um referendum resistance in western sahara this is actually going to be happening in canberra but from my understanding there is an online component so that's potentially how you're going to be able to attend. And then on Wednesday, October the 26th, there's going to be a Pasco Val Roads Active Transport Forum, which is going to be an online event that's going to be happening at 7pm, and it's been organised by Moreland Bug. And then on Wednesday, November the, um, the 2nd to Sunday, November the 20th, um, there's going to be the Palestinian Film Festival. And in fact, maybe we might um, try and give a bit more of an overview of some of the different films that are kind of coming out because, um, that, yeah, that is going to be happening um, in a few weeks sort of time. And, yeah, you can go probably look at the Cine Nova kind of website to get the information on the different films that are going to be screening. But I think, yeah, it's going to be, I think, a good kind of film festival to attend. And then on Saturday, November the 5th, there's going to be a rally, No One Left Behind, Permanent Visas for All Refugees, and that's going to be happening at 2pm at the State Library in Swanson Street in the city. And then on Wednesday, November the 9th, there's going to be a book launch, the New Theatre, um, which is going to be happening at 6.30pm at the New International Bookshop, Shreds Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South. And then on Thursday, um, um, Thursday um, they... Um, 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 Thursday, November the 10th, which is going to be, um, um, music, um, beyond the bars, 3CR fundraiser at 6, at 6pm, 6 Daddy Monura, and Auntie Amia Forbes, Galing Place, 546 to 550 High Street in Preston. And then on Saturday, um, November um, November the, the 12th, there's going to be an art auction, um, Art Meets Activism at 2pm, Fundraiser for Refugee Campaigns, uh, which is at Meat Market Free, Blackwood Street in North Melbourne. And then on Sunday, November the 13th, there's going to be the Schranz Pride March at 12 noon at the State Library. And... Um, the, the other, the other element, um, the other thing is on Friday, November the 18th to Monday, November the 28th, there's going to be the Queer Film Festival at ACME, at the ACME Cinemas Level 2 in Federation Square. So, yeah, that's, um, those are all the kind of events that are going to come, unless there's, um, some events I missed, Chloe, is there any sort of events that I missed,
2: uh, I don't think so. I think yeah, yeah. That's about it. Well
0: probably one event just to highlight again. because um, the I, one I, today. Yeah. Um which is just um just to note um the rally, um the public housing rally, there's going um that we mm. did an interview a bit. That's gonna be happening next Friday just at uh next Friday at at twenty eight Shutter Street in Mooney Ponds, Victoria. So yeah, that's and they, just... she said it was at twelve thirty. Yep, twelve thirty, oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. All good. All right. So now I'll just go play, um, we'll just play, maybe I'll actually play, I think maybe I'll play a, a, a quick song, actually. I have a song here, In the Storm by Bipolar Bears. So maybe we'll play that for the next three minutes before we go on to our next uh, ne- final interview. The yeah. Program.
2: Yeah. The, the next, just stay tuned for the next interview. It's on Western Sahara.
0: Okay. You're listening to Green Left Radio. You're just listening to In the Storm by Bipolar Bears. And now I'm going to go play a quick announcement so we can get our next interview ready for the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
4: what you call
5: Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio And 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash I would suggest 3 cr is a bloody good place to start What your
3: name is we got the hell. Lots of changes We need more problems
2: You're back with Green Left Radio on 3CR. And we've got an interview now with Ron Guy, who is a member of Australian unions for Western Sahara. Um, some of you would know Morocco has occupied Western Sahara since 1975 and thousands of Sahrawi people have been tortured, imprisoned, killed and disappeared while resisting the Moroccan occupation. Um, and Ron, uh, guy joins us today to talk about Western Sahara and how an Australian company is currently importing phosphate from the occupied territory. So thank you for coming on the show, Ron. Oh, thank you.
4: Thank you, Claudia.
2: Uh, so just to get us started, can you please tell our listeners what happened a few days ago at the port of Geelong? Um, I understand you were there to witness this illegal cargo being brought in by the Australian fertilizer company, Incitec, uh, uh, pivot from uh, from the occupied western sahara uh
4: yeah yes um uh, it's been six years uh since, since the tech Pivot have imported any phosphate from from western sahara they they uh, stopped uh six years ago uh because of um uh the the ethical issue was being brought to them at their their agms and uh they took that in. Well, they took that into consideration and then uh, avoided bringing in in uh, phosphate. Um, another company that used to was West Farmers um, over in Western Australia. They used to import through CBSP, uh, and they they stopped importing um, probably in 2012, uh, where they improved their equipment to stop the the necessity of of bringing in phosphate. Um, now, instec Pivot, uh, they, they, we, we, they did call us in for a meeting with them uh, September the 27th to say that they'd uh, change their approach on this issue because of they you know, gave a lot of reasons. But uh, in essence, um, I guess the reasons don't stack up because they've had six years to uh, improve their equipment so they're not uh, reliant on uh, on certain phosphates. From certain area, but um, so so uh, we met the uh, the uh, Isadora. It's in a bad uh, the ship that was coming out. It's um, I guess it's it's, it's uh, we're a little bit surprised by their change of uh, approach, um, but uh, um, we've sent off uh, letters to the uh, to the different uh, politicians, etc. So we're uh, ramping up. The, the exercise on uh, on trying to get them to uh, to stand by United Nations um, uh, laws around the issue.
2: Yeah, thanks, for, I mean, this clipper uh, um, Isidore, I think it was called the vessel. It, it was um, discharging thirty three thousand tons of plundered natural resources, and that's a that's the phosphate um, mineral rock, and it's worth something like fifteen million. Dollars, um, and it was, you know, just at the bulk of, um, it was at the ter- terminal in, in Geelong just a few days ago. Um, I guess, would you be able to tell our listeners a bit about the illegal occupation of Western Sahara? I mean, you know, the authoritarian regime, what it's doing to the people, and also how refugees are being treated at the border because it, I think international media has largely ignored this occupation. So it would be good for you to just give a bit of a... An overview. Yeah.
4: Okay. Um, well, it's it's re- it's uh, Western Sahara used to be Spanish Western Sahara, and it is a non-self-governing country, so recognised as one of the last non-self-governing countries. So uh, worldwide, decolonisation was the process that was undertaken, and there's only about six six places that still haven't had their vote of self-determination. And West Sahara being one of them. So they'd been in conflict against the Spanish, um, yeah, previous to that. So they'd been fighting guerrilla warfare to, to, to uh, tell the Spanish to go home. Um, Morocco, uh, Morocco is, I guess it was a little bit of a, the approach of Morocco to, in uh, is like Indonesia's approach to the greater Indonesia, which had, uh, Timor-Leste, so everybody would be familiar with the, the pain that went through Timor-Leste, um, but also uh, covered other areas. So with Morocco, it actually, Greater Morocco uh, took part of Algeria, so there's the war sands between Algeria and Morocco uh, that went on for, for many years, um, and it also uh, didn't recognise Mauritania as a country. So it had... it. it did pressed that huge area, if you can if you can think about the map of, uh, of, of the map of um, Northern Africa. Mm. So it had Mauritania, but then in 1975 they they had to they did a deal. They tried to say Terranilis was there was nobody existing there, so they took that to the International Court. The International Court uh, did their own uh, examination of that and said no, they do exist. They, uh, they do exist. They're a distinct uh, indigenous people. And that is the basis of that UN uh, outcome that the M- Eddie Mabo case was mm. fought with in, in Australia. So the, it ended up that Morocco had to recognise Mauritania and they did a split. Uh, they said, well, you have half, we'll have half. Um, now, the, the West Saharans um, had, to, uh, had to escape overnight, so half of them got trapped in the in the uh, one side of the conflict zone, and the others uh, uh, seek ref, uh, refuge out into uh, to the desert and went across the border in Algeria, so that they weren't being napalmed and, and shot at, so that the uh, women and children would be would be safe. So they ran the camps over there, and Algeria did the right thing by giving them uh, access to. Uh, to that area, as far as refugees go, there was uh, four water holes drilled out there. So camps were set up around those that, that water holes there, which is the temperature gets up to 50 degrees in the summer period. So it's a very you know, hospitable area, mm. but it was only supposed to be temporary because the UN was on on their side. Uh, the How long have they been
2: ended- there? For sorry to interrupt you. How long is it?
4: Yeah, well, they've been there since uh, 1978, yeah. so so they've been there for a, a, mm. a good period of time, waiting for yeah. <laughs> the UN to uh, to get this problem um, uh, sorted out. So the war continued up to 92, 1992, and then there was a ceasefire with the process. So Morocco signed the ceasefire, West saharan signed the ceasefire, and there was uh, going to be a uh, vote of self determination to sit. To see whether they wanted to be part of Morocco, whether they wanted to be uh, uh, independent, um, and that has been stalled ever since. So it was a UN process, and uh, and we did actually Australia was there in 91, 92 for about six years, uh, helping the registration of West Saharans and, and monitoring the uh, the process, but uh, that got stalled out by Morocco interfering because they were sort of in charge of, of doing the uh, the vote count and uh, they made it horrific for anybody trying to register as uh, a West Saharan. So it's as well recorded as their attempts to stop that, but they still ended up uh, registering. Since then, Morocco has sort of changed its mind a bit because they've managed to build a huge wall, they've managed to... Uh, Build defences there. They've been supported by uh, some of their, uh, their other countries as far as friendship goes, and so the the, the refugees have been sitting there waiting. And the, ironically, they're the best one-run refugee camps in the world because uh, they they do not fight over food and things like that. It's sort of a, they're all slowly uh, starving together, or slowly. Mm. Losing the nutritional value of uh, of the produce that's brought, uh, food that's brought in, or or use the UN um, uh, supplies that are brought to them, which keeps getting cut back all the time because uh, there's other issues happening around the world. But uh, an, a, another aspect of the refugee issue is that uh, uh, Morocco, being so close to Europe, uh, every time there is something that goes a little bit against Morocco's, um, uh, hold over the area, uh, the, 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 the port of Ceuta, which is uh, just across you know, 20 kilometres from, uh, fr- from Spain, uh, so it's a land-based part controlled by, uh, and presumably owned, you know, they, there's disputes over that area by, by, uh, by Spain, but it's on the, you know, on that peninsula that's uh, land-based. So Morocco uh, has had a tradition of um, allowing the refugees that are coming up from, or from the sub-Africa, uh, allowing them to go into the Spanish area, mm. which means that they've got access to Europe. So it's been used as a, as a, a threat that every time that there's an attempt to sort of, uh, to sort out the Conclusion of the vote of self-determination, or if something goes against uh, uh, Morocco, that, that, that by coincidence mm-hmm. <laughs> there seems to be twenty thousand or more uh, refugees flood agra- across into into the, into the Spanish-controlled territory there. Uh, so that happened twelve months ago, and the, uh, the reports were. Uh, this, this all happened over the fact that uh, COVID came along and the, the uh, president of, uh, of, of uh, the, uh, the Western Sahara um, was uh, got COVID and was flown into Spain for medical aid. And uh, they didn't inform Morocco. And Morocco, of course, didn't, uh, didn't like that. So all of a sudden there was 20,000 uh, refugees that are just a pawn in the game pushed across into the border there. And, uh, you know, they had reports of they were, you know, beaten, usually they're, they're beaten to stop climbing over the fence. But this time they were sort of beaten to go around, to swim around, to go over the fence. So it was pushed the other way. And then, and then the, uh, the police and the military, you know, stopped doing that because there was a bit of an outcry, uh, with the, uh, EU EU. Um, and that court, something like I think about 3,000 um, people. So they were pushed back into Morocco, except if you're over the age of 14, uh, I think under the age, sorry, of uh, I think uh, 16 or 18, I'm not sure. You're you're a, a child, so you've got different rights. You can't be pushed back. So there's about all of a sudden there was about 2,000 young uh, refugees that were on the other side of the. Uh, of the fence in the European area that had to be looked after, so that's that's a, a, an ongoing tactic that's uh, wielded wielded all the time in, in that particular particular area.
2: Yeah, um, thanks, Ron, for for giving our listeners that um, information. Just going back to Instatech Pivot, the manufacturer, the Australian manufacturer of fertilized explosive chemicals and mining Service, um, and just, you know, back to that cargo, um, of phosphate landing in, in the port of Geelong. Can you just tell us a bit about the response of the unions, particularly the maritime union who just put out a statement condemning the actions of this company and the solidarity with, um, uh, um with the people of Western Sahara? How important it is for, um, you know, unions and, um, other groups to actually you know, recognises occupation. Um, we just had Dave Ball on the on the show before. I didn't um, ask him about it because we knew you were going to be interviewing you. So yeah, just um, yeah, maybe give listeners a bit of a, a bit of information as to the response of the unions.
4: Yeah, well, the, the unions have been uh, have been very good on on this particular issue mm. um, because you know, especially the the well, the MU, MUA and. Uh, the ACTU and, uh, and all the unions involved there, the ASU and the, the AWU, have always been strong on this issue because it is a um, it is a, you know, a a global issue of uh, resource theft and indigenous and indigenous rights. So MUA has been fantastic, and they did they, their members, of course, uh, are forced to unload uh, this phosphate and. Uh, so, I guess they're being asked to do illegal under UN laws. They're being asked to do illegal things. So, uh, of course, it's hard hard to uh, to go on strike. It's hard to blockade these these times with um, with laws. But if you're doing something that's um, that in essence is uh, helping a uh, uh, or uh, is uh, is stealing, basically stealing from. An indigenous population and keeping them uh, uh, in conditions that uh, that uh, nobody wants to see or shouldn't uh, we shouldn't be allowing globally. So their response is they did send a, a letter out condemning condemning this and uh, uh, asking Mr. Uh, Te to to respect the United Nations mm. laws on this issue. So uh, it's a it's a, str- a strong a strong letter. Um, and, uh, we'll just see what happens from, from, from here. Um, uh, as I say, it uh, has been brought to the attention of, uh, parliamentarians. You know, the, the ALP have got good policies, the Greens have got good policies, but it's in fact that they've, they've just got to enact this and, uh, and, uh, ban the, the exploitation of, of resources. Uh, the African Union, um, can condemn the whole issue as well. So internationally, we we it should be, it should be just a no, no brainer. If you can imagine if we were importing oil, the principles of all are the same. And if we were importing, um, uh, from, from Ukraine mm-hmm. now, if we were importing oil or gas uh, and, and, and Russia was benefiting from it. The, the government would step straight in uh, straight away, and there'd, there'd be a stop to it. Okay, in actual fact, that's one of the things that, because of the Russian-Ukraine conflict, that has, is already um, mm. adhered to. So this is exactly the same. You just have to swap those two words: Russia and Ukraine, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Morocco and Western Sahara, and every, all the laws stay the, stay the same. So it's, a, uh, it's without the permission of the people. Uh, and it's against the, the uh, basically against the, the sovereignty so so uh, yeah uh, it's it's it, Inter-Tech Pivot has indicated that they're seeking to find phosphate from other areas so so they were in essence saying they were reluctant to to get this material but there's a, a shortage worldwide so they had no choice and that they couldn't guarantee that they wouldn't um, uh, be importing more so. I guess our expectation is there'll be uh, more ships, so um, uh, we'll be uh, uh, trying to ramp up the attention to this and do something a little bit, uh, a little bit bigger on uh, on stopping them, both through the political uh, yeah. r- arena, through. Uh...
0: Unfortunately, Ron, I'm going to have to cut you off like now. Um, we're so actually we completely, we're completely out of time now. Unfortunately, um, so yeah, I got to. Yeah, sorry about this. This is actually a bit of an urgent thing. So, yeah, thank you so much, Ron, for being our program. i also like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, but, yeah, I'll see you all next week for the next weeks of Green Left Radio. Thanks, so, Ron. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for that.
4: Thanks for that, Green Left Weekly. Bye.
1: This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit.
0: If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call one 800 634 206
5: Arise you workers from the Slumbers, arise you prisoners of want.
0: For reason in revolt now thunders in it last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.